This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Body Talk. I'm David Lasondak, your host, structural integrator and fascist specialist at UPMC's Center for Integrative Medicine. Today is part two of our interview with Yap van der Waal, where we will discuss the embryo, the origins of consciousness, and beyond. So if you were not going to tell our listeners about the embryo, what wouldn't you say? If you would. (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking with you. I'm joking with you. If we go to the embryo, what do we need to know about the embryo? I think we have a very two-dimensional idea of what the embryo really is. My first impulse is, <laughs> because you asked a similar question some minutes ago about the body, and then I asked, well, the body can tell us how we look, how it look, how we look like in there. Mm-hmm. But the embryo is not about how it looks like. It's about what is it doing? That, that's my that's my red thread in my embryological career what are we doing how does it exist what is it doing and then you come to performance and performing it's shaping so i think what we have to do with the embryo is understand and feel go in it and experience how it lives how it moves how it performs and that's that's that will tell us about also about ourselves because the embryo is still in us as the shaping dimension. The, my, my mind is also the shaper, the shaping, the maintainer, the preserver of my body. So it's not important how it looks like, it's important how do you live there? How does it, yeah, how is it, how is it functioning? And that was the, that was the key. The key is that uh, when you study an embryo, not as anatomy, but as a process, and you see it is performing, it's making gestures, it is performing actions, then you might understand what um, what your mind, what the human mind is expressing in that body. So the body is an expression of the mind and not the reverse. Mm. We made the body cell by cell. We made it, Rumi says. Yes. Rumi, Rumi, the old philosopher. The poet, poet philosopher, yes. And one of the thoughts of Rudolf Steiner, the anthroposophist, that, you know, shocked me that I, it took me 20, 25 years to understand it. He said that the same forces that are at work in my mind, in my thoughts, in my thinking, in my imaging, that are the same forces that in the early days, and he still thought it was only in the early days, but okay, that in the early, shaped that brain, shaped that body, that the same forces (laughs) that were performing in process and in, 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 in fields and in organs, you know, my body, they can become free as thoughts because 
in my whole world of thinking and imagining, I can do the same gestures, the same motions, the same activities as I did when it was shaping the body. That's an interesting idea that the body comes out of the mind. You can use the mind to shape the body. So does the mind begin at conception? Yeah. Yeah. Then it, it, then it is there or it starts to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah that, of course, is, yeah, that is, that's why in my course, the conception story takes a day because that's essential. If you think in mind and body, you have to ask the question, where does the mind come from or where does the body come from? So you have to approach that final moment where for the first time you deal with a mind-body, with a psychosomatic. In Yeah, that already is a choice, that already is a stance. Because many people say, first the body and then the mind. Many people say, okay, first you have a growing body, then it starts to develop a brain and muscles, and then, you know, your mind, your personality is produced by that body. But if my feeling, my, my, my concept is right, then it must be at conception that mind is already from the first day on shaping active in my body. Yes, and we know that the, the embryo, the auditory processes, hearing what's going on in the inner environment of the mother, actually being able to respond to the mother's voice, at least internally, uh, those physical impulses seem to have a profound effect on shaping the mind uh, during development. Is that also thinkable, imaginable with the early embryo? When people consider our, themselves to be only a clot of cells, have experience, can it perceive? Certainly on a level of vibration, I would say yes. Yeah, but if you are, if you were, I don't think you are, if you were uh, a neurophysiology, yeah, mm -hmm. pervert or fanat, <laughs> Then you would say, well, you neurological pervert. A, a clot of cells cannot experience anything because there are no sensors, there is no neural tube, there is no nervous system. That is why many people consider the embryo of three months old, maybe, well, there is something like maybe pain sensation, maybe they can hear something, they can um, feel something or vibrate, perceive vibrations, but all the early time it's impossible because there is no brain, there is no nervous system, there are no sense organs. I would say it's so neurocentrist of you. There are plenty of examples of non-neuronal communication. Look yeah, at yeah, yeah. amoebas, look at paramecium, look at complex colony organisms that live in the ocean. They don't have a central nervous system, but they're capable of doing all of the things required to sustain and maintain life as we know it. Yeah. And so... Prenatal psychology is uh, referring to experiences that embryos and fetuses have far before they're able to perceive in the, let's say, the adult way mm -hmm. of things. How, do you know some prenatal psychologists? How does that work? How yeah. do you even begin to study that? Oh, Thomas Verney and... Uh, Kate White, Thomas Verney was, uh, he's old now, he's Toronto. Mm -hmm. He was the classical, uh, oh yeah, you have a whole, a whole 
domain of prenatal psychology. But they go far back, they go to conception, they go to nesting, they go to um, uh, early experiences uh, in, in the womb, uh, in contact, communication with your mother. They, they follow, let's say, the, 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 the theme that I tried to explain maybe a few minutes ago, that um, you are also, as a mind, you are performing your nesting. And when the nesting is successful, you are training, you are performing for the first time encounter. And that is an, a mainstream in, in phenomenological biology that people say that everything I do later on on the psychological level, like uh, embracing, contacting, um, digesting or whatever, I have to first do that morphologically. The, the, the nesting is the primeval gesture of dialogue, communication. Are we going to do this? Yes. It's the first time you meet another person. The first time that you have to take the risk of connecting with that person and being repulsed. Or maybe reluctantly she accepts you and you are allowed to come in. That all is morphology. And people think, well, that can nothing have to do with my awareness, with my consciousness, because I, I'm not aware of that. You are aware, but you are deeply sub-aware or sleeping aware of that. And it's morphologically, for the first time, pre-exercising. That, that's just, that is one of the topics of the blacksmith embryology, that mm -hmm. in shaping our bodies in the embryo embryonic processes, we pre-exercise in a morphological way what we later will be able to do in a physiological way, psychological way, mental way, maybe even sociological. So, so what, what does that pre-exercise look like? I take, can take the example of nesting. Nesting is often interpreted and described as implantation. And they look at uh, the trophoblast, which is the external coat or mantle of the embryo producing enzymes. And the enzymes destruct the cells of the mucus lining up of the, of the womb on the inside. So the more or less aggressively, the embryo find its way into the connective tissue of the womb wall. And then it starts to uh, create substances that, that uh, influence the hormonal conditions of the maternal organism. So they describe it as an, more or less an aggressive implantation. But you also can describe the processes as first an encounter. The first thing is that mucus skin and embryo trophoblast, which is the future placenta outside the mantle, they kiss, they kiss, they touch. Mm -hmm. And reciprocally, they experience information, they experience the other, they experience the alien, they experience there, okay, there I have to go to. And then there comes a dialogue, an exchange of substances, because the trophoblast has to react with enzymes so that um, yeah, indeed, yes, the lining up of the mucosa is, is open, but also the mother has to react because um, she tends to uh, yeah, destruct 
destroy the, these alien cells, but she will produce substances that will suppress uh, immunity or whatever. So there comes a dialogue. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the primeval way where you experience, where you pre-exercise how it is to encounter with the other. And suppose that there is animosity in that encounter, not, not because of she, the mother is doing that deliberately, but she refuses you or she attacks you or you are lost or you're, could it be that it has a deep impact on your, on your mind and that maybe later on you might experience that even in your deep psychological incapability to encounter with people? Okay, this is this is really funny. I haven't thought about this in years. My mother was one of eight children, and there was one aunt I never got along with, I just instinctively. And apparently, when my mother was pregnant with me, her sister, my aunt that I never cared for, kicked my mother square in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> and I sometimes wonder, uh, well, maybe maybe that was pre-exercising my not liking her very much. Yeah, maybe. But not linearly, you know, not, <laughs> I mean, not the, the morphological gesture is causing, you know, it's it just, it are various levels on which you have to encounter, you have to, yeah, you have to encounter on the morphological level, encounter on the physiological level, psychological level, sociological, every sure. time the same gesture. And that, that is why gesture is for me the key word. I heard Neil Teaser and I was fascinated telling about the theory of adaptive complex systems and, and that you can, could cook could talk about an ant colony, yes. but also could talk about, you know, a bunch of cells of, or, or cells building a tissue, but also you could talk about galac galaxy or galaxies and, and, yes, and every time you had the same mechanisms. And then it was that, that, that talk that I listened to that I realized that is what Blacksmith means. Blacksmith said, we should not think that in the embryo forces are working like we now experience forces in our body on the level of our body on the level of uh, yeah let's say the primary reality we live in we have attraction we have pull and push and and uh, compression so that is mechanical forces but don't think that cells can exert mechanically push and pull and gliding with each other that's impossible on that level it's too small but there you have the gestures of extension, being extended, selling, cells forming, um, he calls it a dilation, you know, they make the gesture of being extended, they make the gesture of pressure, they compact. So their forces are growing forces and it are the gestures of pressure and um, tension, even between cells. Then it is a molecular process of attraction and repulsion. And in the galaxy stars, as galaxies level, we have to think that galaxies, you know, confront each other and then there comes an enormous noise, no one can hear it. <laughs> that the forces of, uh, of attraction and repulsion are quite another 
are the same gesture, but are physically complete different processes. So we must take care that on all these levels of system and organism and whatever, the, the same forces that maintain principles are working, but please realize that it's about that the, word, that the notion of gesture might unify them. That I accept that first I have a, a morphological encounter with my mother, but then you, you work with molecules and, and, and biochemical substances. Then you have, when you are born the first time, you, you fill your mouth with her nipple. And again, you have, you know, a, a, Mm-hmm. But now it's physiologically, and it's it's there. You have more. Yet there, you can exert force really in a mechanical way. But in that nesting, nidation, if you cannot produce mechanical forces to intrude your mother, it is a cellular way of doing. Yeah, mind and body are always together. But at the level on which you work, yeah, might gradually dissociate, and when mind and body this is say then there comes consciousness there comes awareness mm-hmm. or not produced by the body but constantly there as a possibility but when it's closed when body and mind are closed with each other then you sleep a sleeping aware consciousness that's very logical every athlete knows it yes. they do not jump over the rope with their heads they jump over the rope with their muscles they should not concentrate they should decentrate and let it happen it sleeps in their body they they have the knowledge to jump over the rope they also know how to do it with their heads but with their heads they never come over the rope they have their muscles do it the yeah. sleeping awareness and it fascinates me that Intuition. a number yes a, a number of top athletes and we had one here on our local American uh, football team, Troy Palomalu. They play the game in their heads before they ever get on the field. They spend a lot of time in rehearsal mode, yeah, almost yeah, yeah, imagining yeah, yeah. the entire field of play and what happens next. So that becomes a form of pre-exercise uh, as an adult. Yeah. But as person. soon as they are on the field, in the field, they have to forget their head. Then right. they have to know it in their hands, in their feet. They know the billiard player is not using his head. Yeah, in looking how the situation is, but then it goes to his hands, and and he exactly translates the position of the balls in a direction and a force and an impulse. Don't ask him to do it here. He he will never manage it. It's not just math. So yeah, we come somewhere. The embryo has a mind, of course. Or we are mind. And the embryo also is mind. It's a way of being body-mind. And that's why I emphasize in my courses, the embryo is not dead. The embryo is not the past. It's actuality. Every second of my life, I'm also involved in shaping my body. My mind is also the body shaper, the body maintainer. The mind is the integrator, the performer. But mind is not produced by the body. From the beginning on, we are a mind and body. The metaphor, oh, maybe it's not a metaphor, uh, but one of the things that has stayed with me from your embryology course was the idea that when we are born, uh, we don't lose the placenta, but we come out into the world and the world becomes our placenta. Yeah, that again has to do, I think, with uh, where are we? 
or where do we come from? I mean, for the phenomenologist, Husserl, Merleau-Ponty, uh, they said our, our mind, our consciousness is not only here, here in the body, in this body, but with our soul, with our consciousness, we also can be there. It's very easy to be there for your mind, because if you listen to a nice bird singing, you connect with that bird, with your mind, with your soul, and, that's, and then you enjoy the sound or you recognize the sound. So for the phenomenologist, and Herschel was very clear about that, I am not living from here to there, that's what we often think, you know, I have a bird and here I will do the things and I go to that bird and I listen to the bird, but I exist out there. And not really out there, because if I were only out there, I could never be here and become aware of what I meet there. But right. for the phenomenologist, it is the breeze in between there and here. That is where I exist. In that moment. Yeah, in that moment, yeah. So we, where could, would I be without placenta? No, I, I still have the whole world. You are my placenta. Yeah. Right now at this moment, yes. I am, in a way, I am feeding you. Yeah. And you are and, feeding me back. And that is what I think happens with the brain. The brain creates, by means the brain, you create inside yourself, unconsciously, an inside in your inside. As if, like, there's a distance between me and the bird. There must be a cleft, cleft, there must be a gap between me and the bird, otherwise I could never become aware of the bird. You can only become aware of birds and things if you are not connected, if you are separated with it. Could it be that my brain creates an inner separation that enables me to be in my brain and in my toe, in my brain and in my arm. And that enables me to be in between my brain, also informed about other things, and my arm. And that, so to say, consciousness happens in between and that my mind uses this space to become aware of myself. Yeah, that, that gets me back to a, a thought from meditation that the it's the space between thoughts. Yeah. That's that's where consciousness resides. That's where we are. So being, that's the other thing, being is becoming, but being is also being. No, I am not here. I am being at this body or with or by this body. Anatomy is location, but mind is not located. It's not there or there or there. It's no, it's everywhere and nowhere. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit like particle physics. If you know where, if, if you can point to the particle, you don't know where it's going or how fast it's moving. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think that's important because many times in lectures or so, there comes a finger and then you have, you know, the smart mm -hmm. guy. So you are a dualist, sir. Dualist. Because they think I'm a Cartesianist, you know, that I believe yeah, I don't in see body that and soul. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, and since 25 
15 years I know that that really also exists, I say, no, I'm a non-dualist. Yeah, and the non-dualist is something else than a whole, uh, is a holist, but it's not a monist. How about try this one on? I am at one with my two-ness. Yes, that's it. And maybe that is uh, true for the brain, the brain and the body create a tuness that enables awareness of yourself. Like the brain also can create and help you to create a tuness between you here and the bird there. And then you have you use your brain for becoming aware of the external world. But you also can use your brain, so to say, to become aware of your inner, of yourself. And that brings me back to my essential message of my embryo courses we are a non-duality everywhere in your body there is this polarity of connection separation of shaping connecting and becoming aware and and yeah the body is a continuing process yeah but it also means that dying and we die a lot, you know, when we are living. Dying seems to be the procedure to enable consciousness. Because if you are involved and shaping and dragging around with your cells and your matter, how could you be aware of that? When you are involved in running and jumping over the rope, you are, you are sleeping and acting in and with your body. But as soon as you land on the floor and you become aware of what you did, yeah, then there comes the joy of uh, being, yeah. So it is as if life and death, separation, dying is a necessary necessity for awareness, for, for consciousness. And that is why these modern discussion again has come about the near-death experience. There is now so much evidence that Opposite to what we expected, and what we expected was that the higher the level of consciousness in a part of your brain, the more activity you expect to take place in the cortex and in the scan. And I recently, I don't know names anymore, saw mm -hmm. evidence in Belgium, they did research, that actually when people in meditation or, in, or just by accident uh, experience high levels of um, the presence of mind, you know, high levels of consciousness. Sometimes you have that. You, you, yes. you have your intuition and you act. And then there is a minimum activity in the brain. And then I think that is where near-death experience comes in. Because we know that near-death experience is... Now also you can manage that with, a, with, a, with electrodes. You can bring the brain. And so, but sure. then they discover that they had to diminish the activity of the brain to produce a near-death experience or an ecstasy. So the higher the consciousness, the less activity in the brain. Yeah, that is suspicious. That is, <laughs> yes, that is very suspicious, very suspicious indeed. That's why they now are so, so very careful and cautious with these um, locked in locked in persons and these so-called uh yeah vegetative persons they might have mm -hmm. consciousness but on a level that we can hardly imagine there is an excellent film called alive inside yeah and this this goes back to the vibration idea but 
what this film very clearly shows with people who are in more of a vegetative state, who are in a neurologically impaired state, that if you play for them, the vigorous music of their youth, and I don't mean get a guitar and play and sing, but play them the actual recordings, they become more responsive. And in some cases, even begin to reverse some aspects of their condition because of their response to the music. And it happens very quickly. When you watch this, it's astonishing. I'll I'll put some links in the show notes. But trying to get music players into these nursing homes was much more difficult than than, uh, getting different medication. And that should be be a no-brainer. Yeah, 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 yeah. No so, so that yeah. leads to yeah. that leads to another question. You shared with me that your father was a priest or a reverend or some such. He was an assistant reverend in the Reformed Church, not in the Catholic Church. Okay. He was uh, one of the elder elder people, and he could assist when the the reverend was not um, able. He was assistant reverend. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Having gone, an official <laughs> theologist. Okay, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so the theologist and the phenomenologist, and the consciousness and the near-death experiences. What What are your thoughts right now on what happens to consciousness at death? At that moment, or in death? Um, anywhere you want to go. You, you must think about it. I'm curious mm-hmm. what you think. The paradox is that the more you, that's what I found at least in physiology, embryology, morphology, the more apparently it seems that mind or spirit, how you call it, and body become separated, the higher and yeah, higher the degree, the level of consciousness. And that is what people of near-death experience tell. My wife told about it. They tell about heotoscopy. They see themselves lay there. They see a flashback. They get a distance from their own biography and they can see in, 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 in a timeless second, they see their whole life and they understand. So they all mention an enormous cosmic consciousness as if they were connected with everything and could understand when they looked at themselves they, they came in a kind of kind of look there that's you um consciousness and they they talk about a higher ecstatic consciousness some women at birth experience a thing like that hmm. they experience they experience orgastic um, yeah, a- awareness and being one with everything. So, for, gradually, to me came the idea that in embryo, mind and body connected, involved, shaping, in brains and sent organs, mind and body separating, creating awareness. So, the more I die, the higher, and then it ends, because then I die. And when I die, there is no connection anymore between my spirit and my body is my idea. So mm-hmm. when there is disconnection, absolute disconnection between mind and body, we are that. 
dead. We are unconsciousness, but unconscious, let's say, considered here. But there, you might have an enormous consciousness because you are now connected with, yeah, the world of spirit, the world of God or whatever. So could it be that the because of life after death, of the hereafter, we do not have consciousness. We don't have awareness of life, of the afterlife. Otherwise, all would be convinced of the reality of life after death. But could it be that the sleeping consciousness, remember Hamlet, yeah, to yes. die, to sleep, no more. The unconsciousness we experience from this stance, from the stance we are now living after death, is the same is the polarity of the unconsciousness we experience when we look back behind the moment of birth. In there we slept and we worked and we were embryo. We must have been there. We must have been there in every cell we have been, but it was sleeping. So that brings me to the notion that connection between mind and body makes me sleeping, unaware, subconscious, this connection also, but in between there are the levels. So could it be that the silence, the, the, the silence after death, the unconscious of the is the mirror of the unconscious or the polarity of the unconsciousness before I was born? And that my daily life consciousness is again between here and there, between me and the other between what the theology says, ich und du, that God, said the modern theology, is not a far away. God is in your neighbor, is in the plants, is in everywhere. But yeah, God and I are separated so that we can become aware of each other. And that takes me back to Stephen Jay Gould. We have evolved these chemical reactions in our brains that produce these states uh, when we're dying to make us less afraid. Why would we evolve that as a mechanism? It, what useful purpose does it serve in a purely evolutionary context? And then you add into that that women sometimes experience these ecstatic states during the process of giving birth which again, doesn't seem to serve a necessary evolutionary process. Therefore, there must be something to it, even if it is beyond our ability to perceive, because we're on the other yeah, side. Yeah. And it also reminds me of the work of Audin, Michel Audin, was a, is a famous French uh, gene gynecologist working mm -hmm. in London, birth works. And he studied the process uh, with which mother, the mother, maternal organism, is accompanying the fetus, the child. And it seems to be that all kinds of hormones and substances, also brain hormones and endorphins, massively are, by means of the placenta, introduced to that fetus and its brain. And therefore, for a few moments, the brain, the fetal brain, the child's brain is brought in an in a state of activity that it could not reach by itself yet, because the brain is immature and does not 
is not capable of all the processes that are now so typical for our adult brain and whatever. So actually, that mother, by means of these hormone storm, is bringing that child that has to die or has to go, yeah, to has to face an, an completely unaware, uh, impossible future because it's pushed out of the dimensions where it was living and where everything was okay. So maybe mother um, drugs her child to bring it in a high state of activity, high state of consciousness. And that is why maybe the child, yeah, is then when it comes out capable of surviving that, yeah, that, that maybe dying process in um, becoming aware of, oh, there it is. Yes. From a perspective of the embryo, from the fetus, you have to die to yourself in that environment in order to be born into this environment. Yes. Yes. And mother assists you. She's not throwing you out of her belly. You have to leave your own body. You have to die. Your placenta is your body. The placenta is a corpse. So actually, the act of your mother gives birth, but you are born. And being born is the same process, the same gesture as dying. Because you disconnect, you leave behind the body where you lived. Don't forget that prenatally, you do not live in this body. You live in your placenta. That's where you live. That's where you breathe. That's where you digest. That's where everything is. And you are involved in shaping the body that's now sitting in the chair. So you have to die out of your placenta dimension in order to go on in the body that you are now sitting in. So it's a process of dying and your mother and your mother assists you in that. Maybe it's the morphological, biochemical, uh, histochemical way to say, you do it, you can do it, <laughs> do it. <laughs> and mother is not shouting with her voice so that you can hear it with your ears because your ears cannot hear yet that much, but she's shouting with hormones. It's a gesture of pushing, you know, she's not mechanically pushing you out of her belly. She is biochemically as a gesture pushing you towards the world, you can do it. That is birth, that is giving birth. Just do it. Yeah, and maybe we could do that also at the other end. Maybe that, that's the model, you know, in a Holland, there's a lot of debate nowadays about euthanasia and things like that. And mm -hmm. I recently had a good friend of mine and it was nearly present at the moment that he died mm. in, in euthanasia. He's giving birth, you know, the, the, the midwifery and the doctor, Maybe we should also develop a kind of um, giving death or giving die or giving whatever. Yeah. Maybe you can help each other by going over the threshold. Because nowadays we are not so well in dying anymore. We, do, we don't know how to stop. We can never leave this body. We are so addicted to this body that we talk about fear. That's what Steph, uh, gold, gold, gold said. You know, that we construct a mechanism not to let, to let us be afraid of dying. We are not afraid of dying. Why should you be afraid of dying? If there wasn't dying, you know, evolution could have taken place. It's, a, it's, a, it's the most sacrificed offer you can give to the world to die, to give place to someone else. 
Otherwise, there would not have been an evolution. There are more extinct species and extinct species than species that survived. They made us possible. <laughs> so death is, you're, death you're is not wrong. Death mm -hmm. and dying is an essential feature of life. And these bloody transhumanists, you know, nowadays they want to they want to have to live as four four hundred years. Go away. Yeah, I, I don't think we can live forever by replacing our parts with machines. Then we're not we're not bodies anymore. We have no randomness if we're just machines. And would you ever take a risk when you live forever? Would you ever t try something new? That's that's an interesting philosophical question. I guess it depends on your ability to survive. If if you, <laughs> there's a difference between not dying and surviving. Yeah. You know, if I knew that I if things went awry that I could be revived and regenerated and reborn as a version of myself, I might take more risks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or you are paralyzed. I know it all. You should. You should read quite an old book, Simon de Beauvoir. You know the, yes. the feminist mm -hmm. avant la lettre. Mm -hmm. Tous les hommes sont mortels. Uh, tous les hommes sont mortels. Every human being is mortal, and she describes there in a, it's a, it's balladry. It's a it's a, a book, book, not a science science book. It's just a Mm -hmm. Roman, 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 how do you call that? Uh, Bellatry, Bellatry. Bellatry? Yeah. A memoir? No, no it's, it's a book that, it's not a biography, it's not a science book, it's um, Fiction? a... Fiction? Huh? <laughs> Fiction, a story? Yeah, yeah, a story. Yeah. And she mm -hmm. tells the story of a man who was, who has become more immortal. Mm -hmm. Terrible. It's, yes. It's, it's terrible. You will never, you will never take any initiative anymore because you know it all. He knew it all. He had ever so many times he had experienced love. So many times he had experienced anger and and death. At the end, nothing is of interest anymore. And that's kind of where the conversation stopped. Uh, I started telling you about the book. Uh, about where exactly the opposite happens. It's by Matt Haig, and it's called How to Stop Time. Uh, and as we were discussing that, his wonderful wife, Els, wandered in, and we all kind of caught up with each other. And the next thing you know, our time was done. But I will surely have Yap on the show yet again. And by the way, if you have some questions for Yap, or for me, or for any of my guests, if you look at the Anchor.fm app, there's a little thing there where you can record and send me basically voice memos, voicemails uh, with your questions. And you can also email them to bodytalkdavid at gmail.com because we're going to start doing some question and answer shows in the coming months. I'm going to be adding a number of new features to the pod and you're going to hear about them all on Body Talk where we explore your inner universe. See you next week.